Well, it's nine o'clock, so I want to go ahead and get us rolling for today. Wow, it's good to see all of you. Uh, it's a little unnerving to have a crowd this large in Sunday school, um, but I'm glad you're all here. Um, I'm going to be honest. This was probably the most trouble, and Pam and I have spent some time talking about it in the last couple of days. It's probably the most trouble I've ever had preparing for a Sunday school lesson. Um, it's very different than what I'm used to doing. So um, this may be 10 minutes or it may be 40 minutes. I'm just not sure yet. Um, so before, I get, before we get started, um, I'm going to pray for us. Before I do that, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with this prayer and then I'm going to finish up praying and then we will um, kind of get started for today. So uh, this is called Valley of Vision. If you've never gotten your hands on a copy of this, I would encourage you to. They're pur- Puritan prayers. And um, I find that there are a couple of them in here that I come to come back to on a weekly basis. And there are some others that are just kind of fresh every time I read them. So uh, I want to read one as part of my prayer today, and then we'll continue with our prayer time. Oh, Lord, thou knowest my great unfitness for service, my present deadness, my inability to do anything for your glory, my distressing coldness of heart. I am weak, ignorant, unprofitable, and loathe and abhor myself. I am at a loss to know what you would have me do, for I feel amazingly deserted by you and sense your presence so little. You make me possess the sins of my youth and the dreadful sin of my nature so that I feel all sin and I cannot think or act but every motion is sin. Return again with showers of converting grace to a poor gospel-abusing sinner. Help my soul to breathe after holiness, after a constant devotedness to you, after growth in grace more abundantly every day. O Lord, I am lost in the pursuit of this blessedness, and I am ready to sink because I fall short of my desire. Help me to hold out a little longer until the happy hour of deliverance comes, for I cannot lift my soul to you if you of your goodness did not bring me nigh. Help me to be diffident, watchful, tender, lest I offend my blessed friend in thought and behavior. I confide in you, lean on you, and need you at all times to assist and lead me. Oh, that all my distresses and apprehensions might prove but Christ's school to make me fit for greater service by teaching me the great lesson of humility. Father, we come before you right now and we are just humbled by your love for us. And we are so thankful that at your heart, you are gentle and lovely. Because if you weren't, we would not be able to stand before you. Father, I pray that you will open our eyes and our hearts to your heart today. And I pray that you will just help us to see you more clearly after today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, uh, for those of you that are may not be aware, we are doing Gentle and Lowly um, for our Sunday School material this year, uh, this uh, spring. Now, um, I'm not going to do something I usually do in my classroom, and that I usually tell my students, uh, don't forget, when I ask a question, it's usually because I already know the answer, I just want to see if you're being honest. And my first question is usually, did you read your lesson this time? So I'm not going to do that to you. I've already had some people come and repent. 
Um, but one, talk to your elder about it. Um, one of the things I want to encourage you, though, is I hope after today you will see the absolute encouragement that this book will bring you. Um, I was telling uh, Gil earlier this morning, I said, most of you know that I'm a reader. I spend a lot of time reading. Um, Pam can vouch for that. Um, this book, in the last 10 years, this has been the book besides the scriptures that has um, broadened my understanding of who Christ is more than any other book that I've read. I want you to understand just how much of a jewel this is. Okay? But I'm going to do something that I, I was telling Gil this morning too. I kind of got on the, the author's case this morning because... Uh, I read through the book, and then John and Scott came and said, hey, we're going to do this for Sunday school. And I'm like, all right, I get to read it again, which is a good thing for me because I love reading things more than once. But I get on the, the author's case because what he says at the end of the book should be said at the beginning of the book. So that's how I'm going to start today because I want you to know what the end of the book says. And there's a couple of sections right here at the beginning that I'm actually going to read for you if you haven't read it so you can hear it. Okay, but it's the epilogue. This is a book about the heart of Christ and of God. But what are we to do with this? Please hear this clearly. What are we to do with this? The main answer is nothing. To ask how do I apply this to my life would be a trivialization of the point of this study. If an Eskimo wins a vacation to a sunny place, he doesn't arrive at his hotel room, step out onto the balcony, and wonder how to apply this to his life. He just enjoys it. He just basks. But there is one thing for us to do. Jesus says it in Matthew eleven twenty-eight: Come to me. Why do we not do this? Goodwin tells us, it's the whole point of our study of Jesus. That which keeps men off is that they know not Christ's mind and heart. The truth is, he is more glad of us than we can be of him. The father of the prodigal was the forwarder of the two to that joyful meeting. Have you a mind? He that came down from heaven, as himself says in the text, to die for you, will meet you more than halfway, as the prodigal's father said to do. Oh, therefore, come unto him if you knew his heart, you would. Go to him. All that means is open yourself up to him. Let him love you. The Christian life boils down to two steps. Number one, go to Jesus. Number two, see number one. Whatever is crumbling all around you in your life, wherever you feel stuck, this remains undeflectable. His heart is for you. The real you is gentle and lowly. So go to him. That place in your life where you feel most defeated He is there. He lives there, right there. And his heart is for you. Not on the other side of it, but in that darkness, he is gentle and lowly. Your anguish is his home. Go to him. Um, As an American Christian, one of the first things that we do is when we learn something, we go like, okay, what do we do with this? How do I do this? How do I apply this? Where, Where do I go with this? What I want you to get from this study is this. Understand at his heart who Jesus is. 
and let it sink in. Because what's going to happen is when you truly understand who Jesus is, it will, he will automatically work that out in your life. All you need to do is come to him. So now I'm going to jump back to the introduction because he says something here that kind of piggybacks on that. This book is written for the discouraged, the frustrated, the weary, the disenchanted, the cynical, the empty, those running on fumes, those whose Christian lives feel like constantly running up a descending escalator. Those of us who find ourselves thinking, how could I mess up that bad again? It is for that increasing suspicion that God's patience with us is wearing thin. For those of us who know God loves us, but suspect we have deeply disappointed him, who have told others of the love of Christ, yet wonder if, as for us, he harbors mild resentment. Who wonder if we have shipwrecked our lives beyond what can be repaired? Who are convinced we've permanently diminished our usefulness to the Lord? Who have been swept off our feet by perplexing pain? And are wondering how we can keep living under such numbing darkness. Who look at our lives and know how to interpret the data only by concluding that God is fundamentally parsimonious. It is written, in other words, for normal Christians. In short, it is for sinners and sufferers. How does Jesus feel about them? So I want to ask you a question before we get into the book. And those of you that have read the book, please don't jump to the book's answer. Okay, I want to, uh, I want to flesh out what the American church thinks. When I say, who is God, what's the response? A being. A being, okay. What attributes make up God? Judgment. Love. Love. Holy. Holy. Omniscient. 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 Respectful. Respectful. Creative. Creator. Transcendent. Transcendent. Powerful. Vengeful. You ask some people that aren't don't spend time in the church. And you say, who is the God of the Old Testament? He's vengeful. He told Israel to go around and slaughter every other people group in the area. Just. He's just. I like that. I, I, I do. I, I like the fact that God is a just God. I'm a rule follower. And it annoys me greatly when people don't follow the rules. and People don't read their Sunday school lessons. <laughs> I'm a rule follower so God's justice to me is good and when he's not showing his justice something's wrong I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands but I'm a wager a bet that some of you feel that same way especially in the current environment we're in in our country true justice God's justice, which we talked about last Sunday school round, is very different than what our society is saying is justice. So, who does Jesus say he is? And this is interesting. The author points out, the author points out in the book, 
that his dad learned something from Charles Spurgeon. And I didn't really go through to look it up. I did a little bit just to double check. But he said that of all of the, all of the narrative in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus only talks about his heart one time. What is in the, in the pit of his heart one time? He talks about all kinds of other stuff, but he talks about himself, who he is, one time. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. So what I want you to do is turn to Matthew eleven twenty eight thirty, 28 to 30. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. Now, I'm reading from the New American Standard. Um, the author did his from the ESV, which is different in just one little way, and I'll mention that. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You guys know this, right? You've heard this. If you spend any time in the church, you know this passage. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle, and the ESV says lowly in heart. Mine says, humble in heart, you will, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my load is light, or my burden is light. So when it says in verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. How many of you, before reading this passage or before coming into Sunday school today, would have would have ever used that as your first thought for who Jesus was. It wouldn't have been me. But when we say heart, what are we talking about? The the author goes into a discussion of what the heart is. So what is the heart? When we're talking about the heart, what's he talking about? Okay, that's a great definition. The center through through which all things flow. So when we say all things, what are we talking about? Emotions. Our emotions. What'd you say? All things. All things thanks. <laughs> Appreciate that. <laughs> when you strip away when you strip away all the stuff that we try to cover up, that's what's left. Okay. Uh, he uses he uses the term um, our motivation headquarters. I thought that was so good. Everything that you're going to do and the reason you're going to do it, that's where it comes from. So I did this really nice thing. Was it because I wanted to do this really nice thing or is it because it makes me feel good to have people go, look what he did. Motivation headquarters, right? So your heart, that's the part that motivates you. That's the foundation for everything that comes. And Jesus says his motivation is what? To give us rest. To give us rest. What's his heart? Gentle and lowly. lowly. So I know my motivation is definitely not to be gentle. You guys know me well enough to know that. Um, But he says that I'm gentle and lowly. So 
what, what implications do we pull from that for, for who Jesus is? What do you, if, if this is true, and the mindset that we have carried in the American church that God is holy and just, which we're not saying he's not those things. We'll come back to that. That God is holy and just and omnipotent and powerful. If that is his motivation, what should he look like through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Okay, like he did in the Old Testament. Fire and brimstone, Sodom and Gomorrah. What do we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Say that again. Okay. Well, yes, and and of course that's our that from this point forward that's going to be our gut answer, right? So give me more than that. Service. More. A reset. Okay, so something that's very different than what it was before. Okay. Back to a personal relationship. Say it again. Back to a personal relationship. Back to a personal relationship. Now, this is important, right? Because I want to jump ahead here because it ties right in with what you just said. Uh, at the end of chapter 2, uh, page 31, he quotes um, Jurgen Moltmann. Okay, and when we talk about Jesus' miracles, we talk about something supernatural that happened in a natural world. But I want you to listen to what Jurgen Moltmann said. When Jesus expels demons and heals the sick, he is driving out of creation the powers of destruction and is healing and restoring created beings who are hurt and sick. The Lordship of God to which the healings witness restores creation to health. Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only true natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. He's restoring that relationship that was created in the garden. Now, I'm going to come back to what Mary said. And I want you to say it again for me, Mary. A reset. That reset back to what was original. That's big, right? What else is, is Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? What do we see from him? How, how so? Be specific. Give me something. The woman at the well. Woman at the well. Leper. Lazarus. I know there's more than three stories in those four books. The man lowered through the roof. The paralytic lowered through the roof. Good. Eutychus. Eutychus. Feeding the people. Feeding the people. Jairus' daughter. Jairus' daughter. daughter. The tax collectors. The tax collectors. The blind man. The blind man. Zacchaeus. Okay, now, you see how many stories we're talking and, and, and we're not, we didn't even hit a lot of them, right? According to the book of John, uh, the end of the book of John, if all of the things that Jesus did were written down, the world could not contain the volumes. Now, the, what we think of as the God of the Old Testament, which really wasn't true, but it's our mindset. How many of those experiences did we see? In the New Testament? In, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
times. He did, yeah. He, he, he didn't just get angry. It was premeditated, right? He went and he, he created a whip out of cords and he went into the temple and he started turning stuff over and, and thrashing people. So, please understand, I'm not talking about God's, God's holiness and justice apart from his gentle and lowly, but what do we see of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John? His heart. He, he, the, all of these are aspects of who he is, but what naturally pours out of him? His gentle and lowly, yes. It comes back to that, doesn't it? Now, some people want to say, Jesus is love, Jesus is love, right? We've heard that, right? Um, verse 28, 29, 30, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. But please do not forget that 28 comes after verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which, which occurred in you, would have, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. That's judgment, right? So is God is love, Jesus is love, does that apply to everybody? It would if they accept Ah, there's a caveat here, right? Um, verse 28, what's it start with? What? Come to Steinbarger because he can save you. Who? You have to come to him. <clears throat> and only then, what's the next step? Verse 28. He'll give you a rest. What's the next step? 29. Take my yoke. Come to me, take my yoke. If you're not willing to come to me and take my yoke, it's not for you. And verse 21 needs to be ringing in your ears. So there's two aspects here. Come to me and take my yoke. Look at verse 28. And, I, and I, I'm not asking the questions directly that are in the, the study guide. Okay? Um, I'm not saying, what difference does it make in your everyday life? I'm not doing that. Okay? But these questions are guiding the things that I'm trying to ask you. So please don't think that because I'm not physically asking the question that these aren't important. Because these are great guiding questions to lead you to understanding what he's saying in the book, okay? So please don't misunderstand that. Verse 28, come to me, who? All who are weary and heavy laden. What's the difference? Orland talks about this in the book. What's the difference between weary and heavy laden? Did anybody get to this part of the chapter? There's a difference between weary and heavy laden. Weary. Tired. Tired. Um, tired is uh, an effect of what? 
usually for, for many of us. Working hard. I am trying so hard to do this on my own. I am weary. Something that you have a choice to do. Are you trying to work to get yourself to Jesus? He's saying, if you're one of those who has been trying to work your way to me, just come. Just come. Heavy laden. We, we've had a lot of sorrow in our church this, over the last 18 months, haven't we? Person after person after person who's passed away. Person after person after person who's dealing with cancer. Losses of jobs. Are those things things that you had any control over? That's not a weariness. That's a heavy laden. So Jesus is saying, if you're somebody who's trying to work to get to me, just come. And Jesus is saying, if you are weighed down by these difficult things, just come. Take my yoke upon you. What's a yoke? Constraint. Say it again. Constraint. A constraint. What's the purpose of a yoke? Okay, make two animals go the same direction. Because if you have two animals tied with a rope, they're going to pull each other trying to go their own way. So you put a piece of wood over their neck that holds them down and connects them together so they'll pull the same direction. Jesus says, take my yoke on you. And we think of a yoke and we think of something burdensome and we think of something heavy and we think of something uncomfortable. And what does he say my yoke is? Easy and My yoke is easy and my burden is light. What does he mean by easy? He goes over this in the book. What does he mean by easy? Does he mean come to me and everything will be unicorns and rainbows? No, he'll be with us through everything. Relative to working without him, his yoke is easy. His burden is the Greek term, yes, both of those are great. The Greek term for easy, he mentions this in the book. What did he say it, it relates to? The life preserver? Yes. That's the analogy that he used. The Greek word go, re- refers to something that is kind or kindly. Is a wooden yoke that goes on cattle something that's kind? The cattle ain't gonna appreciate that, right? They're they're taught by it, but they don't like it. Christ is saying that my yoke is kindly. It's kind. That goes back to his being gentle, right? His gentleness for those that come and take my yoke. Okay, we're not saying that. Once we come and take his yoke, then everything's going to be easy. He says that when you're with me, it will. And this is one of the reasons I struggled so much with this. I know what I'm thinking. 
and I'm having a hard time putting it into words. But the Life Preserver is a great way to, to understand this. For those of you that didn't read the, that part of the book, he mentions that God's, uh, Christ's yoke is like a guy who's drowning in the water. And you, throw, you say, here, I'm going to throw you a life preserver, put it on. He said, I'm already sinking and you want me to put on something else? Not knowing that just like a balloon in helium, when you put the air, the helium in, it still fills the balloon, but now it's lighter than air. Same thing with a life preserver. Yes, you're putting more on, but that life preserver will buoy you up. His yoke is that way. You put it on and he pulls you up. I think that yoke, I mean, even that, that lightweight yoke, that, that easy yoke, I mean, what, what's the purpose of a yoke? I mean, you put it on an ox, it's going to work. Doesn't matter what kind of yoke you put on an ox, ox is going to work with that yoke on. We have a light, easy yoke in Christ. We're still working. It's just, it's, instead of it being a burden, some work, is it's that reset. What's the end of verse 29 say? He, he will find rest for what? Your soul. Not for your body. He still expects us. There's still things to do. There's still work there. But in that, there's rest. Thank you. That was great. So, the fact that Jesus is gentle and lowly, the fact that his yoke is kind, his yoke is easy, and it's light, what difference should that make in your life? Before you answer that, am I the only one who looks at this and goes, I really haven't thought this deeply about Christ this way before? It's always about what can I do better? I messed up again. And he's saying, come and take my yoke. Come and take my yoke. That's all he's saying. I'll give you rest for your soul. And that battle isn't one we have to keep fighting. What difference should that make in our lives? No difference. Let's continue living life the way we always lived it. Just another hour I can mark off my check. I was here and I've done my duty for this week. Is that what this is? Is that why you're here? I had a conversation. uh, Pam and I had some folks over this week and we were talking to them and, and, you know, um, Orland says this. Uh, about a lot of the Puritans that he referenced on this. And he said, you know what? Uh, This is important. I want to read this. Because I don't want you to see this as me. (laughs) 
We are neither the first nor the smartest to read the Bible. We are neither the first nor the smartest to read the Bible. Throughout the history of the church, God has raised up uniquely gifted and insightful teachers who walk the rest of us into the green pastures and the still waters of who God is in Christ. One particularly concentrated period of history in which God provided penetrating Bible teachers was 1600s England and the age of the Puritans. This book on Christ's heart would not exist if I did not stumble upon the Puritans and especially Thomas Goodwin. It is Goodwin more than anyone who has opened my eyes to see who God is in Christ, who God in Christ is, more, most naturally and easily for fickle sinners. But Goodwin and the others raised in this book, such as Sibbs, Bunyan, Steinbarger, Garrett, Gill, John, anybody else who stands up here behind this, teaching on a regular basis, are just channels, not sources. The Bible is the source. There's nothing that I bring to this because that sinner and sufferer is standing before you. And this has beat me to the floor because it's changing how I see Christ. Question five, he asks about misconceptions of Jesus. According to Thomas Goodwin, what misconceptions is Jesus correcting when he describes himself as gentle and lowly? Verse 20, uh, um, page 23 and 24, he, he talks about that. That those of us who, who lived with... Um, and my, my, growing up, I was, my dad was fairly hands-off with me. I was given a lot of freedom. Didn't have a lot of rules to follow. And I've become a very, very strict rule follower. There are some people that were hammered with rules when they were young. And they love the Jesus that is love. And they're not much, they don't give much thought to Jesus who is, who is a judge. But through this, we need to make sure we don't misunderstand who Jesus is. We have to understand that his heart for us is to be gentle and lowly, coming to us like he did to the lepers and to the paralytics and to the demon-possessed and to Lazarus and, and Jairus' daughter. His heart is to come. His heart is to meet them where they are. And I brought these in. I'm not a big fan of Jesus movies. They, they kind of make me shiver. Um, but if you've never seen either of these, I would encourage you to spend some time this week. Because what this is, is this is talking about the Jesus who reaches into people's lives, who really have should have no... Um, no choices, you know, no belief that Jesus would even want to reach into their lives. Uh, especially back then where the demon-possessed and the leprous and those who were sick, they were unclean, and, and Jesus touching them should have made him unclean. But it's that, it's that reset, right, where he then is making them clean. 
I don't, I don't necessarily agree with a lot of this, but I want you to understand something. This is called the Gospel According to Matthew, a visual Bible. Yes, it's four hours long. They go through the entire book of Matthew verse by verse. And I, I read a book, um, the author, I'm sorry, the guy who played Jesus, Bruce Marciano wrote, um, and he said his desire was to show the humanity of Christ in this. And that's what we're talking about, right? Jesus restoring humanity to what it should have been before the fall. And to read the story of the leper, where the leper falls in front of Jesus and and we read that Jesus touched him and healed him, we don't understand. Some of us, until you see it, you don't understand. This man is... Everybody is shying away. The disciples are shying away. And he even turns his back to Jesus knowing that he is unclean. And Jesus walks up. Can you imagine? He walks up. He turns him around. Puts his hands on him. And the leper says, if you're willing. You know what the word will means? If your desire is to make me clean. And Jesus says, I will. I desire to make you clean. Until you see it, it doesn't resonate. This is another one that shows, and if you haven't seen it, they do a great job of showing the humanity of Christ. So I would encourage you, you want to see this in action, you want to see Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30 in action, spend a little time looking at this because it puts a visual representation of everything that we're reading about, about who Christ is. So how does this apply to us? Uh, how do we get to where we are now? Because hey, the disciples had Jesus, he was right there. So much easier when he's walking with you, right? And you know that's being sarcastic because if you know anything about Peter, he was always putting his foot in his mouth. But it's harder for us, isn't it? Because he's in heaven. Spirit's with us all the time. We have it better than the disciples did. They had him for a time when he was here on earth. And then they had it the same way we have it. But we have him all the time. He is always with you. Regardless of what you're suffering with. Regardless of what your difficulties, whether it's you're weary from trying or whether you're heavy laden because of the difficulties there come to me that's all he's asking come to me and take my yoke let's pray father we thank you for this time in your word we thank you for matthew and this detailed telling of christ and what he did thank you for being gentle and lowly help us to see you as gentle and lowly help us to know it help it to seep down deep into our hearts. Help us to know you that way. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Thank <laughs> you.